This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds. Jordi Visser, how the devil are you? <laughs> I'm good, Roll. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm talking to you, true exponential age style, on Starlink from an island of 140 people in the middle of absolutely nowhere. <laughs> Only your style. Only you can pull it off. So, um, Listen, before we, get, um, before we dig in, just a quick bit of background. A lot of people have seen your previous video, but those who didn't, just give a little synopsis of your background. Okay. Uh, Non-traditional, didn't go through graduate school, joined Morgan Stanley in the controllers and risk um, management area and actually coded for about the first year and a half that I was there to build risk systems. Went into equity derivatives, uh, just like you, um, and spent uh, the better part of the next 12 years at Morgan Stanley from the early 90s. Uh, to 2003, and all of that was in emerging markets, um, including opening an office for Brazil. Then I left, started my own macro hedge fund uh, for two years, then met George Weiss, took that team and brought it into, uh, into Weiss. And I got here in 2005, and I've been here since, and uh, I'm the president and CIO of the firm. So, yeah, I mean, as, as we've talked about in the past, uh, you and I have a lot in common, and uh, we've had a lot of fun conversations in recent times as well, because we've both gone down the same rabbit hole. The, where I want to kick off with is the last time you and I uh, met was in actually in your office in New York, and you threw a bombshell at me about the death of the business cycle. And obviously, you and I had spent our lives looking at the business cycle as the predominant macro factor. Now, this is all about the exponential age but it's also about how the structure of economies have changed. Talk me through your big picture view, and I'll sit back in horror and listen to you. <laughs> well, um, I think when we did, when we did um, my podcast, In Search of Green Marbles, what, I took some of the things that you said, so two of your core beliefs. One of the things that you've said is that for growth, so let's just start with have a business cycle, we're growing. Um, to grow, it's about labor force growth, it's about debt growth, and then there's a the productivity part. 
So if you don't believe we're going to have debt growth and you believe that robots and uh, artificial intelligence are going to supplant or take care of the labor force growth, well, then you've got a productivity boom. The question is, as you move more towards that right off the bat, are you breaking the model of what business cycles were? Now, let me go back for a second. So to have recessions, it's those two points again, debt and jobs. In the prior decade, as the iPhone and the smartphone took over, I started writing about, and I think you started getting interested in exponential innovation at that point. And you looked at these compounding numbers not of productivity, but of how are these companies, these seven mega companies generating all of the wealth? They're, they're driving the markets. MSCI World X, the US is unchanged since 2006. Like I, I like to say that to everyone who's just trying to go through it. If it wasn't for the boom in the smartphone and the domination by the big seven, there really wouldn't be any kind of growth that happened. So I thought the business cycles were already starting to become extinct because these companies were growing their market cap so dramatically. But what they were growing it without for the first time in the history of public markets was without debt. So you've already broken the debt to market cap side. And now with generative AI and also with these companies, they never had to have the same amount of employees as we've had to have in other companies. So I just don't think for companies to grow, they need to borrow money, especially with generative AI. And I think if they don't need to borrow money and they don't need as many people, then the business cycle isn't as fragile or isn't dominated. And also when you finalize it, if you believe the digital economy has gradually been taking over the physical economy, which there's no doubt it has been, then by definition, you're going to have a harder time having business cycles. So it freaks people out. But I'll tell you, what is a business cycle since the Great Depression? We don't allow ourselves to go into a debt deflation cycle. So we had one chance of it, which was 2008. And as you mentioned on the podcast, which I agree with, the Fed got these new shiny tools that allow them to bail out things or do things like they did for SVB to prevent a synchronized recession. So rather than confuse people with the fact there's no more recessions, no more business cycles, it's just that a business cycle doesn't look the way it did. And maybe a business cycle now is 1% growth for a couple quarters, followed by 3% growth, then back down to one, stay at one for a couple of years, then go up to three. But we never really have these big extreme moves because technology has just smoothed things out like it does with everything else. So <clears throat> one of the things that, there's a lot to unpack there. One of the things that you mentioned to me that really stopped me in my tracks was this idea about we're living in a world of abundance and recessions are driven by scarcity. Talk, talk me through what you think through that, because that was really something I thought was very profound. I, I mean, since the beginning of time on economics, when we left and I, I read or I listened to this person during COVID, and I spent a lot of time on the microbiome in 2020, and this guy, Zach Bush, who if you haven't listened to him or even had him on the podcast, he's a very interesting person. And especially at this time, but he is, I would say, one of the, the, the people I learned the most from on the microbiome. But he had this interesting statement towards kind of what has what allowed the fiat system to be created. And it was the invention of the plow which allowed people to kind of live this localized agricultural world and become lawyers and doctors because you could feed yourself through this. And that's how we ended up kind of really spreading across the globe. 
and going through this. And that was because once we started to travel, a, lo a locale did not have enough commodities and we had to go travel around the world to get commodities and we started to use a lot more energy and it's a finite resource. So by definition, until you actually get to the point where there's abundant, and let's just use energy as an example, if right now there wasn't fossil fuel needs and we actually had LK99 and we had the ability of having flying cars within a year, what would that do to the business cycle if now we don't have this need for commodities and we're never going to run out of it? If you believe in 3D printers and the ability to print the house, then why do you need to have workers and have all this stuff there if you can 3D print the house in half the time? If you believe in nanotechnology, if you believe in not Ozempic, but now we're getting into gene editing, we're going to be able to extend life. So all of these things lead to something which is when you hit the exponential curve where artificial intelligence becomes such an important force, then all of a sudden, hey, it's going to take us four years to get a vaccine because we're scarce of a vaccine for this pandemic, and it's created in two days. So we're so close to a world of abundance, abundance because of generative AI hitting so many people that the advancements just can't be understood. And I think we're closer to it. And I think that makes it more challenging on business cycles when already during our career, because I think you, if I remember you started in the late 80s or 90, just before I did. So we haven't seen many recessions. Don't include the pandemic. I mean, they were spread out pretty, pretty big. And what happened at both of the, the beginning of our careers? Netscape and the internet. And so I think this whole thing of abundance has been happening. And I just believe it's going to mean that business cycles can't happen because we can get what we need so quickly. You know, and I've got why this struck me is I've got some sympathy for this because for the very reason you've just mentioned is we had a career in, um, we had a recession in 1990. Then it took another 10 years before we got another one. Okay, and that was an equity-driven bubble because of technology. Okay, and it was a very mild recession, actually. It was a nasty, in stock market terms, mild recession. Then... We carried all the way through till 2008, and that was the end of the debt cycle, the debt super cycle finished then. And since then, we've seen a business cycle, but every time it gets to the bottom, it doesn't really get to negative GDP growth, and it rebounds again. Obviously, the central bank stimulates, all of the things happen like it's a recession, but it's not a recession. We had the same, I believe, in 2019, and I think we were towards the bottom of the business cycle and then 2020 comes along <clears throat> and we had the sharp drop down and we revert back to that ongoing cycle. And here we are at the bottom of the cycle again and people are saying, well, where's my negative GDP growth? Mm -hmm. So what you said struck me. The other thing is, okay, on this abundance versus scarcity idea, I guess what one of the things you're saying is that we still have scarcity in commodities, even though productivity keeps rising. You know, this is why I started an, an ags hedge fund in 2006. I thought this is a great idea. There's a, too many humans, blah, blah, blah. Right, like a moron, I completely missed the fact that productivity of, of uh, farming just is a relentless trend. So crop yields just go up and up and up and up. So food prices go down and down and down and down. And we saw that kind of with shale as well. But do you think now in the digital economy, 
that the size of the rest of the economy is too big for the commodity cycle to matter. And it can still move up and down, but not enough to cause the real problems. So I, I'm going to use a real-time example for people to think, because it's real. I, I, you and I both know that AI is moving so quickly and that the advancements in things like protein folding, like it's unbelievable to read back in the 1980s about the concept by the, the, the forefathers of, oh my God, if we could just get protein folding done and actually figure all of the proteins out, but we'll be lucky if we get through whatever. They'll, we'll never get through them. And then alpha fold gets everything done quickly. So you really can't think about exponential innovation because our brains, and you've said this before, they can't comprehend it. So let's use something that everyone has heard about this year and most people have only heard about within the last year, Ozempic. Now, it's not directly related to AI, but it is related to commodities in a very important way. We waste an enormous amount of heat. We waste an enormous amount of food because of the inefficiency of the way our buildings are done, the way we run our temperatures, the fact that we heat a building when no one's in it. We already have enough com commodities. We just waste a lot. Once China was done coloni colonizing Mars, as I like to say, and they were done building everything that they'll ever need, you have a problem. So what's happening with consumer staples companies? Well, their share prices are under pressure because Ozempic is reducing calories, calories in terms of people are eating by a significant amount on calories they don't need, and that shows up in the obesity numbers. So we were worried about not having enough food. We have too much food based on obesity. Um, we may not have enough food for the rest of the globe, but we've wasted so much food that I believe aside from the solutions through nano and through getting to having resistant crops and all the things you said, which are innovation, which are happening, we're gonna get through the efficiency side and the productivity side. We're gonna eliminate waste. And if you think about what happened with fracking, you can divine it as many ways as you want, but we went from inefficient searching for oil in the ocean. And I can just remember when Petrobras was in the middle and it was like to find it. And we were planting flags at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean to try and find oil because we were running out and then we had fracking, which is really about efficiency and the ability of getting this done. So I just think people underestimate when it comes to commodities that when you argue that we're going to have more people and we're going to run out of them, I think we've wasted an enormous amount. And AI is going to help us be more efficient, but it's also going to come up with other solutions. There's a friend of mine, I don't know if you know Diego Perea. Um, he was another ex-Goldman guy. Diego wrote a book called The Energy World is Flat that stopped me in my tracks, which was, he's like, you've got to understand there's all of you guys staring at screens in financial markets and you forget that the oil markets are driven by engineers whose entire job is efficiency. And his thesis was, most people are expecting the end of oil in terms of you know peak oil, oil prices go on forever. And his, his thought process was, <clears throat> no, no, everybody's massively economically incentivized to lower production costs and find new sources. And he was dead right. So he said the energy, the, um, the, the energy world is flat, meaning that the, the curve should not be steep. And I thought that was really profound because he was dead right, which is the same idea that you've got is technology is moving fast enough to actually stop this. So again, we're seeing talk of like oil needs to go to $200. There's not enough oil around. 
well, A, economic demand is not using as much oil. I understand we use a lot of energy for AI and the compute, but those are getting exponentially more efficient in their use of energy, right? Yep. And you know what else is getting more efficient? Who was the most inefficient user of commodities on the planet was China. And if you want to do something fun in ChatGPT, ask ChatGPT to write you a report on EV sales around the globe using saying, show me what the estimates were for global EV sales across the globe written in 2015 and compare it to what's happening now. Because I don't think people realize that China is leading in patents on AI. They're arguably leading in quantum computing. <laughs> They've become a technology behemoth where in 2006, part of the reason that you were interested in ag and I was interested in oil going to infinity was because of China. The numbers just made no sense. So here we are now and everyone's focused on China on Evergrande and on these things that just really don't matter. And they're not focused on how much money and how in, they're incentivizing people of the least efficient or the worst country in the world for abusing commodities and abusing this stuff. And how now they're driving a lot of the innovation in AI and how they're an integral part of this. Now, are they up to the US? No, but they're going to continue to become some, a group that dominates in clean energy. And that means you have to take off what they were gonna use or be inefficient with and take those numbers down. And it's, I mean, we're only talking what, 15 years ago when everyone on the planet believed coal was the trade. And then it went next to close to zero because of fracking. And then it gets a rally again because of a shortage during the pandemic. I think the China efficiency story, or at least their technology investment story is one of the more important ones in the world towards people that think that the future is going to end up in the same place. Cause I think it's a major story again of a, of a country that was probably the most important for this curve because of where they were financial, where they were size wise. And they're just not contributing commodities the way that they were. I think that's right. And I think the other thing that you mentioned that you and I have talked about is the kind of the Fed have taken, the central banks have taken the left tail off I, the risk because the, the classic recessions and the bad ones were about the value of collateral falling, exposing the debt. And what they found is by using quantitative easing, it has two effects. Once it, it um, lowers yields, but the other thing it does is it debases the currency and therefore the value of the collateral goes up versus the debt. It's the scarce asset that goes up in value, the variable asset doesn't. And so once you've got that trick, you take the tail out, the downside tail that happens in recessions. So therefore, by definition, they should be milder, which makes sense, which is why I expected this one, whatever this economic downturn is, to be more like 1990, less debt-driven, just, just cyclical. And it feels like it's just cyclical. Whether we get a negative GDP quarter or not is kind of irrelevant, but it's not a big deal. And unemployment won't rise dramatically. It might go up a little bit because people are seeing slowdown in sales, and that's real. There is a business cycle, but you've kind of taken the worst of the bottom part off. I mean, look at it. We, sh we closed the entire world in 2020. Mm -hmm. right? That is the worst economic outcome you could possibly have. 
and the whole thing was over in a quarter. So let's take it further. So before Lehman, and let's go to the time, the last time that I was actually worried about a, um, this was the end and this happens to coincide. So I wrote a paper in 2013 after I had taken a trip to Silicon Valley, decided that China just was not going to be able to grow anymore because of the debt they had already put forth. And it was going to be a, a they were going to navigate their growth lower over time, but the commodity cycle was not going to happen. So in 2013, I talked about the fact that the next, whatever, the future was all about these new innovations and what was happening with the smartphone was too far more important. And we were, we had entered the point of singularity or some kind of thing where exponential innovation was going to be huge. But in 2012, I was worried. And the reason I was worried is because I thought the problem in the EU was much tougher to solve than it was in the US. So we just had to have a bipartisan TARP chaos followed by, okay, fine, we'll, we'll give in. But I figured with Europe, with all the different countries, that it was going to be very difficult for Germany to actually be the printing press for the rest of Europe. It just didn't make any sense to me that that was a likely scenario. And I think everyone who probably traveled and talked really was worried about the fact that this could happen. So Europe as, as an economy is 20 trillion. The US as an economy is 20 plus trillion. And China as an economy now is 20 trillion. We control 65% of global GDP, not the change, but the actual size of it, the debt and everything is in those three places. And we've all figured out that we can basically get rid of the left tail. And the rest of the world, the emerging markets where I traded during the 90s, their balance sheets are fairly pristine at this point. So you're just left with a world that the worst balance sheets in the world are the printing presses. <laughs> They've taken out the left tail so the and I know we'll we'll eventually get into crypto, but this is a good spot to at least say it. If you believe in no business cycles, rates are going to stay up at five percent for a long time unless inflation completely collapses. Which I think, as much as I'm a big fan of AI, I think the adoption is going to take a long longer time than probably people think, as most of these things do, to have a noticeable impact on things like inflation. So I do think inflation won't get down to the two percent level within the next few years. I think it could, but I think it would take a recession since I don't think one. I think we're going to stay around here. And the reason is because of the wage situation. I just don't think with having unemployment at these low levels that it's really going to be easy to not pay people the wages. So I think labor is going to have an advantage at this point on public companies. And the reason crypto is such an interesting thing then is because we flipped the world. So emerging markets, which obviously, if you separate China and you take out the wealthy people in China, and then you take the poor people of China and you add up the numbers, this is the rise of many, meaning the printing presses, the debasing of all of their currencies, they're going to lead to a rising up. And I think you see it all the day in geopolitics. I think you're seeing it in the Middle East conflict. I think you're seeing this all over the place where groups that are poor, that are not able to partake in the world the way it has, I think the barriers to entry have gone down and I think crypto is a really, really, really great place for them to move or to grow their money. And I think over the course of no business cycles, I've said to people, I think the S&P maybe will get you, you know, five to 6% as long as rates are up at, at 5%. Um, over the next five years, if rates stay at 5%, since it's 5% across the curve, you pretty much know what you're going to get in returns on bonds. 
everyone still is looking for an asset that can grow more than 10%. Everybody. Uh, I hear it in my world, on the hedge fund world, well, you have to give me 10 because if five is the new benchmark of Fed funds, what could be a better world for crypto than that like situation that I put together? If you have 10% of your money in, in Bitcoin and you have 90% in Fed funds, worst case scenario at the end of the year, you lose everything in Bitcoin, you've still made 90% on five and a half percent. That's why I think Bitcoin will start to replace a lot of the assets and bonds and stocks because they can't outperform Fed funds rates with no business cycles, in my opinion. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, we'll get on to crypto in a bit. That's super interesting. The other thing that you said something that I've been trying to think about as well, uh, and I'll come back to your ridiculous idea that rates are staying at 5%. I'm not going to let you get away with that. Um, so the... <laughs> uh, there is also a structural change in who owns debt and who doesn't, which is the important point that you made. Mm-hmm. Like the Magnificent Seven have 0.0 debt, really. <laughs> right? And so, Blue Tarski, a- yes. what's that? Blue Tarski, yes. We'll use some animal farm, uh, animal house uh, jokes. So. Um, 0.0, yes. <laughs> and 5% interest just compounds their earnings on their cash. Right, so they just accelerate, and you know we've all observed the magnificent seven that we're calling them these days versus like the Russell two thousand. Right, that that Russell two thousand looks like the economy's slow, and the, the others don't, and that's really interesting to me. I look at what seems to be happening is those people left with the debts from the old world are the people who struggle: the banks, the AT and T's, the GEs, all of that. That's not going away, but we can't let them go bust because there's so many jobs still in that sector. That's the kind of old world that needs to be kept afloat. You know, those are the, that's the pension system. That's, you know, everything is kind of still stuck within that. And it feels like it's the, um, it's, it's that demographic needs to kind of go out of the labor force and then eventually um, it kind of leaves the population. I think that's, there's something within the structure of the economy that we will see this bifurcated economy ongoing. Yeah, but there, so there's two problems. Because these guys have got a totally clean sheet. Yeah. And these well, guys haven't. Well, here's the thing. You're right, but then the old economy and the household has a clean sheet too. So the debt for most individuals in this country that matter. And again, you, you, if you're a wealthy person and you have, you know, $100 million of net worth and you have $10 million of debt, it, it doesn't matter. If you're a person that buys a house and you have a lot of debt and your equity in, in, does, in the house doesn't change, you care about your monthly payments. And right now, the servicing of debt in the U.S. for a household for mortgages is at all-time lows. And the reason is because most people have fixed-rate mortgages. So their balance sheets are clean 
And the amount of equity, and I just did a webinar uh, yesterday or the day before, I, I don't think people realize how much equity has accrued in uh, in the real estate market in the U.S. over the last four years. It's it's astronomical. Um, and so how, as long as the housing market is fine, it's another element of savings that, again, when people just look for what are the savings in the country? Well, your house has gone up. And if we don't have a recession, then the house price doesn't go down. Even if it stays the same, there's a lot of equity in people's homes. For the corporate side, they still have a lot of debt, the American Airlines, the GEs, all these groups. Now, they've done a good job of restructuring it. And I think there's less than a trillion dollars maturing in the corporate debt market. You're not talking about numbers that matter that much. They've termed them out over the next 30 years. Corporates did a really good job. So who holds all the debt that matters? It's the government. And so I think this is another part of that left tail that makes it very unlikely to have the contagion that would normally happen because there's just not enough size in the debt market on a shelf that matters. And also, you know, again, the Fed have shown that if it starts getting ugly, they'll get involved in that market too. That was the big, the Rubicon they crossed in 2000 was saying, no, 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 we, we'll go into the private credit markets too. We don't care. So it's like nobody is going bust. That's what they've told us. That's what the ECB have told us. That's what everybody's told us. That's what the Japanese have told us. There's another point that you raised, is something I've been thinking about for several years now, is that the structure of the economy from about 1996, 97, 98 changed, which is people used to build businesses by going to the bank and borrowing money. Nobody starts a business with debt anymore. Nothing. None of these businesses, the entire, almost the entire business structure of the world changed. Well, not of the world, really the United States more than any other country had become an equity culture and not a debt-based culture. So you didn't, I mean, when I grew up, you'd go to the bank, you'd, you'd put on a suit and tie and you'd go and beg the bank manager to give you a loan because you want to start a business. Um, and now it's, it's driven by equity. And that changes a real difference because it makes these companies less structurally problematic because the debt doesn't accumulate, it's just equity. Yeah, and, and something changed with the iPhone too. And this is, um, I mean, I can use this as an example with, with Sultan, um, who, I, who I was on the show with you and he just did our podcast again yesterday. But Sultan started a business in the last six months. Um, really kind of infusing AI into, into businesses. And uh, I mean, he, he already has, uh, you know, 10 figure revenue. He took no debt and he's been offered money from VC and he's rejected it. And this is the new world. Now the, he raised this money and built this business, not raised it to build it because he's doing this all with AI. So the cost structure of running it, is being funded by the revenues. So he already has the revenues to cover the expenses and the business is easily worth nine figures already, easily. So I've watched this and thought about this whole concept. And the reason this happened is because of the iPhone. And I wanna use an example. So, you know, you'll have someone call up and say, I'm starting GoFundMe for a friend or what, like the ability to raise money within a community which is what the crypto represents, 
which is why I think most small businesses will be done this way. Friends of friends, localized, and they'll fund the business because that's kind of the way everything started before. It's the way your kids, when they want to start a lemonade stand and you go through this, I believe more and more you don't have to go to this dispersed public market to raise money from these big institutions, that you're going to have an enormous amount of business formations that are smaller. They're not going to take debt to start. They're going to fund it through revenues as long as they can do this. And even if they can't do it completely, you're talking about small loans. And if you can use AI, then you can scale the business, not only without debt, but without people. And that's what Sultan has done. So I think people are underestimating how many businesses will be formed this way. And again, that disrupts the business cycle for sure. Yeah, it's just, yeah, I think this this whole crowdfunding, we'll come on to that when we get onto crypto, the whole crowdfunding model is a, is a very different model. I mean, even Real Vision, we never raised from VCs, we raised from the community only, the capital that we needed to build it. Because- There you go. Yeah, I mean, which is an extraordinary thing. So let's talk about um, the idea of rates at 5%. So I do still a lot of analysis on this, and I just think inflation comes down. Just because wages, prices never come down, as we know. (laughs) You know, it's very rare that you actually get a wholesale deflation in the economy. What you tend to get is the year-on-year rates of change slows down. And what I've been looking at is, obviously, the commodity part, the kind of the, the the high velocity part of inflation fell a lot this year, brought inflation down. And then we find there's a significantly lag, a significant lag of maybe 18, 50, between 15 and 24 months between wage growth going to year on year flat or negative um, and um, rents. Mm-hmm. So I just, for me, forward looking, just extrapolating out just the year on year base effects. We get to zero in core inflation sometime in 2024 and headline inflation too a little bit earlier. Um, so I think it's, I don't think there's a world with which the central banks can keep, this is a core thesis of mine, that the central banks can keep rates at 5% because the compounding effects of issuing new debt to pay the interest on the previous debt. And that it, if they keep rates at Five percent to have to do yield curve control and basically print it and put it on the balance sheet. There's no way of doing it, and we've seen the stresses in the bond market because of this very thing. And what I found is that every there was a great debt reset in 2008. They said nobody needs to pay the interest on the debt anymore. Don't worry about that. And so everybody, unlike the corporates, that as you said, went slightly longer term in the structuring of the debt. The governments didn't. They did three to five years. And that four-year cycle is the cycle that we still see within the economy. And that I found that all quantitative easing basically equated to the interest payments from the last um, the last um, cycle. Mm-hmm. So they just put the interest payments on because they can't keep accumulating it because that just goes exponential. So I, th- I think it's impossible to keep rates at 5%. So my hypothesis is, that they are keeping rates higher for longer on purpose to undershoot inflation? I agree that they their goal here and they've made it public and I don't think, so this, let, let's hit, it's two two separate points. So we both agree Sorry, on one. Either, one other point is they either, they either get inflation to undershoot, so it's like, whoopsie, sorry, let's get rates back down to trend rate of GDP growth, which is where it needs to be, or 
they blow up the banks and go, oops, sorry, rates, you know, let's just print some more money, you know. So, so two separate points. The first point I agree with, um, I believe they have rates at these at these levels because inflation has already come down. And I think what you're describing has already happened to some degree because we're now a year and change past the peak of year-over-year inflation. I mean, we're we're almost 18 months past the June peak. Yep. So those base effects, they're already happening. I mean, they haven't completely happened, but obviously in the goods side, you're already kind of at negative in a lot of different goods prices. It's the service yeah, side. Most CPIs are negative all around the world. And in some places, I think it's Norway's like minus 20 something percent. It's crazy. Yeah. So I, I'm, I mean, we're both deflationistas. We both know where this is ending up because of AI. And I agree that Powell has made his bed and every central bank around the world has made their bed that they won't allow inflation to bob its head up again. And they're still overreacting to things like headline CPI was 0.6 two months ago and it was 0.4 and look at the last three months. And the reason that's important is because the one thing he left out for our entire careers, we've never had wage growth. We have wage growth and I don't see it stopping. And I will give you, um, you know, one of the most important things for there not being a business cycle. Ray Dalio in September does a, uh, is at the Milken conference and he says publicly, we're headed to a three-day work week. Jamie Dimon in early October goes on Bloomberg TV after his earnings or before his earnings and says, we're going to a three and a half day work week and your kids are going to live to a hundred. The reason I bring that up and why it's important to this, I don't think the wage pressures, I think labor has an advantage right now in a big way. And I don't think that's going to change because I think if you believe in crypto, you have to believe that inflation is going to stay higher. I believe the two go hand in hand. And the reason I say that is it's going to be hard to keep the best people in the fiat system, especially the younger ones, from going to this other world. And that means that in the fiat world, they have to keep paying more money to keep the talent. They have no choice. And so what's Google going to have to do? What are they doing with AI people? So I believe wages have to stay higher as part of this. I'm leaving this country. And I've said crypto is a new country. It's America and the way people thought of it a long time ago. Forget the, you know, anything about it. It is where people want to go who want freedom. If they want to work less, if they want to not have a boss, if they are willing to work for less, whatever the case is, or if they have a great idea, which is what a great company is. It's what a great coin is. Uh, a great coin is an idea. It's no different from anything that's come up with Steve Jobs or anything. These are just ideas by human beings. I think it's going to be hard. But then the second thing is, I don't like anecdotal stuff. I have not seen it at all. Restaurant prices are ridiculous. They're insane. And I, I mean, I cook. I don't go out that much because I find it ridiculous to pay $30 for a salad at a decent restaurant in New York. Nick game, opening night last night. I don't have season tickets because there's none available. I went to go look at the prices. The cheapest seat to get into the game was 200 and change dollars. At the worst seat up there, there is absolutely no way, and I hate anecdotal stuff, so this is not an anecdotal thing. This is just, I don't believe with what was going on with Taylor Swift, minimum of $2,000 a seat. That is an indication that there is so much money out there that I don't think this is coming I mean, down as fast as you think. Okay, on that point, 
I think there's lots of different things going on at the same time. On the point of the Taylor Swift, the Knicks game, what we saw in the Cayman Islands over Christmas as well is like the US economy was slowing down. We had record tourist season. And my thought process in this is, look, we, we live more and more of a world like this, you and I, in this digital world. We speak to people digitally. We do stuff digitally. Now, you're in the office. I'm not even in the office. I yep. barely go to the office. So, but I'm all day on Zoom and email and everything else. And I think that real-world experiences, proper experiences, trade at a premium, and they will continue to do so. Um, and so even as a share of your household expenditure, your holiday becomes the most premium thing because you get to spend actual time with actual people. Um, and it's the same with a concert experience. You know, there was nothing, I, I'm a big concert goer, I love music. And that was the one thing that we all missed over lockdown because there was no way to go to a concert. There were no concerts, but I could speak to my friends and everything else, but it just wasn't the same. Um, so I just have a feeling that that's a structural shift. You know, one of my other viewpoints is as we move towards this kind of metaversal universe is that nature trades at a premium. Yep. I agree. And we've seen people move out, you know, people from New York moving to Hudson River Valley because nature is at a premium in a world where we're constantly digitally engaged. So I think we're, we agree on this point, except for one thing, it's the timing of it. So I believe that inflation will stay above 2%, okay? You believe it'll go below faster. That's where the difference is for everyone who wants to go through it. I think we will eventually go below 2%. And rather than think that maybe it happens in, you know, in eight years, it could happen in three years. I just don't believe that. I think it has to come from generative AI and three-day work week becoming more of a reality. And I've learned with the iPhone and I've learned with any technology that, even if LK99 was real right now, how long would it take to have an impact on the on prices? It would have an impact on the stock market way in advance. But for prices, I think it's going to take more time. And I'm going to drive with the fact that the number one thing people are going to have to convince me of is that wages aren't going to grow at 4%. So if I said to you, forget everything you believe about paying it, if wages are going to grow up 4% a year, which I believe will happen, I don't think you can have core inflation below 2% if wages are going at 4 Yeah. My view on wages is there is going to be some scarcity within the labor force because of the demographic structure, and we're not yet ready to replace them with AI. I totally agree with that. The secular disinflation from AI in the exponential age comes later. I think past 2030, it becomes, you know, that's the death of inflation, exactly to your idea. Um, in the interim, how I've thought about this is if I think of total economic output, and then I think of the wage inflation of the people in the labor force is offset by no wage inflation from the retirees. So I think you need to divide it by the total population. And what you find is it's much less because the aggregate net demand doesn't go up as much. Because these guys, aggregate net, net demand, this, all the bullshit stuff about, oh, all of these retirees are going to be spending so much money. I'm like, no, no, they don't. Anybody who's seen their parents retire, see that they become very frugal very fast because they don't know how long they're going to live for and will their money be enough. And it's a, it's a real psychological thing. And I think their expenditure goes down and offsets these guys. So I just don't see it, which is what, one of the reasons I think trend rate of GDP growth stays low. 
So here's a concept that will hurt that argument and you'll have to think about uh, over time. So I agree with you in the way that dealing with my own parents, but I don't get phone calls anymore. You know what's changed? The Fed funds rates are 5%, my friend. That's inflationary. So for, for retirees, and again, not everyone has money saved up, but as yeah, long as they have money. Median is only like 200,000. It's, yeah. it's terrible. But again, they can all go get jobs too. So there, here, here's the issue that comes in. If you break down the economy with 5.5% money market funds, or five, you, you just have money accruing. M2 grows normally by, starting with, how much is in the bank account? If you can get a job and you're getting paid 5.5%, then bank account deposits plus money market funds should be growing. And this year, you've got money market funds that are up over a trillion dollars this year. You've got bank deposits, which have stopped going down as of whatever, May, June, and they've gone sideways at this point. You've got household real estate, which has gone up dramatically. And I think the numbers are $12 trillion over the last four years. I mean, it's staggering numbers. You know, you're talking 50% of GDP in the housing and those retirees own houses. So they can do reverse mortgages. They can do things where they can take money out. So they have benefited significantly. And my mother, she doesn't call and worry about things the way she used to. So I think the that combination of being able to get jobs and having a bank account, I think that's inflationary in both cases. Now, again, I don't think this is inflationary in a bad way, but you made the point that I agree with, and you can say whether you agree with this. If the economy is growing at 2% and inflation in the country, PCE core is still growing at 2.5%, do you think they're going to cut rates? No. I don't either. And that's what I'm thinking is going to happen. So I don't expect explosive well, growth. And I don't expect a bit. They don't want such positive real rates. I think, you know, they cut it a bit. And, and I am sympathetic to the view that rates may not come down as much as cyclical inflation comes down, in my view. Um, I'm sympathetic to that view. It's kind of a wait and see. Let's see, because there's a lot yeah. of unknowns out there. I kind of get it. The other thing that I wanted to touch on was, okay, the central banks have reduced the left tail, but what the left tail has done is create the 1% versus the 99%. Yep. Right, it, you know that's accelerated that whole process, mm -hmm. and as you said, we think that, or you think, there's power going back to the workers, but it's probably still not enough to offset. You know, even if you get four percent wage inflation, the central bank balance sheets tend to grow faster than that. Yep. So that net net rich versus poor divide continues. No way. He who owns the assets is king. So the only way is I think you got to the same conclusion. You need a fractionalized asset that everybody can own. Exactly. You know, and put in 5% of their paycheck in, regardless if you're a billionaire or you're a, a worker in a rice field in the Philippines. By taking out the left tail, the distribution of wealth, as we both know, has been created by the fiat asset system going up to $500 trillion, plain and simple. Yeah. So for anyone who's trying to guess, how did it go? It's not because of incomes. The wealthiest person, Jeff Bezos, did not get paid an income that made him wealthy. You get paid in your ideas, and then they grow, and you own a big portion of your business, and it grows to some mega number. I believe, and you and I are on the same page of this, the transfer of the fiat, I believe fiat assets are at an all-time peak, and they will not go any higher. So 
I believe we are at the peak or last year was the peak, whatever it was, two years was the peak. We will not take out the peak in fiat assets. And that money will go through two mechanisms. One is the disruption of the private of the public equity through non-public equity will take time, but this is the business formations and what we talked about. If you don't need debt and you don't use equity anymore, you're just community-based growing your business. Like your business is a real business. Okay. If you don't have a VC fund in there and you don't have this, the people that are benefiting are the people that are using your service and you, your team. If you believe that that model, which I do, is going to continue to flourish and go well, well, then the money that's in these public companies, their business is being disrupted by people like you. AI companies will disrupt the big businesses. Uh, I think I mentioned, I, I definitely, we talked briefly. I'm not a believer in the mega cap tech companies being able to win going forward. I completely disagree with that whole AI argument. For a year or two, it might be, but I think we're at the peak of fiat assets. And I think if you look at MSCI World X to US, that peaked in 2006, it's unchanged, which is a scary thing for people to realize. And now you've had the, you're on your way to the third negative bond performance for the Barclays Ag in a row, three years of negative bonds at the same time. And if you go to IG in the US, it's basically unchanged since 2015 or 16. That's an unbelievable thing that you haven't made a dollar in IG really going back over the last seven years, and you haven't made a dollar in MSCI World X the US since 2006, and now we've got treasuries and everything that are underwater for anyone who has a duration bond past you know, the next three months. So you're starting to have this loss go, and you and I both know that one thing will happen with human beings, they will remain greedy, and they will migrate to assets that are working. And that's why this week was such a big deal, um, not to pick on thing, but I've used ARC, Kathy Wood's ETF, which is an innovation ETF versus Bitcoin as like a comparison of my thought that the public innovation, the public equity market will be transferred into the crypto world. And so if you look at a ratio of Bitcoin over ARC, it just broke out through all time highs. If you look at the correlation between the two, they both went down violently together. ARC was going up early. It's gone back down to the lows while Bitcoin's at the highs of the year. So I think we're starting that transfer of away from the fiat public asset market and into the fiat thing. And if so, you got a $500 trillion behemoth and you have a trillion and a quarter tiny little thing. You want to have at least 5 to 10% of your money in crypto. And if you want to be someone who's speculating a little more, you want to have more. And so once this thing starts to go, I think it's just going to keep going. Yeah, and I, you and I agree that what we've built is a parallel economy and also a parallel financial system. And when people talk to me about the ETF that's coming, I'm, I explain to them is like, okay, if you if you understand that, in fact, I'm going to write an article about this for Global Macro Investor this weekend, is if you think of the crypto economy as an economy made up of sub-economies or states like Ethereum and Bitcoin, what this ETF is, is a trade agreement between TradFi world and crypto world. Yep. It's just a trade agreement and we can choose to use it or not. And what you're saying is what we both believe to be true is that the moment people perceive the superior returns, then that trade agreement is going to see records amount of FDI coming into new world. I, and you know this well, one of the reasons that I enjoy talking to you and I'm sure you enjoy talking to me. We're macro people. 
that believe in something that the average age of the people who believe in it are in their 30s. And the TradFi world and the fiat world, his own assets are owned by people in their 50s, 60s, 70s. So forget the whole transfer of wealth argument, which is going to happen too. It doesn't really matter. The reality is the TradFi world has proven that they will invest in anything that they think they can make money in. <laughs> and so you're going to migrate to what's working and what's going to be working. And I really do believe, and I said this to someone who said, oh, Bitcoin is a safe haven. In fact, Palm tweeted it this week. Oh, Bitcoin is a safe haven asset this week. And I said, no, it's the only asset working this week. Like it's the only asset right now. And I don't think people realize it's up 110 or 100 plus percent this year. And now the S&P at the lows today was only up 7% before dividends. And the bond market is down again. So 60-40 or risk parity is up, was up 2% at the lows today, 2% year to date. It was down 16% last year using a 10 vol instrument. Risk parity hadn't lost forever. Anthony Robbins wrote a book. And I knew when Anthony Robbins wrote the book, we were close to the end of the fiat system. When he writes a book that risk parity will work forever. And I'm like, hey, I like Anthony Robbins as a guru for certain things. But if he's telling me how to invest, we must be at the end of the fiat uh, system. <laughs> I got more interested in crypto at that point. So, <laughs> The other thing is, you know, when, when you think of crypto as an economy, as we talked about, uh, economic growth is driven by population growth, productivity growth, and debt growth. Uh, well, we just blew up all the debt growth in crypto. But um, population growth, so if I look at the um, number of active addresses, um, it's it grew 42% in a down 80% year. So immigration is still massive. So there's this economy in recession, the crypto economy, yet it's still attracting population growth as people come into it. The other thing that you're talking about, which is also very true, it's a huge talent suck, right? Because there's such a connection between, it's like working in the mobile phone industry and getting paid for every single thing that happens on the network. That's what crypto is. So it just attracts more and more talent because the, the right tail is so much larger than anything else. Because there's another issue that um, I wanted to bring into that is that the right tail in traditional tech businesses, I had a friend of mine for dinner last night, and he's done a bunch of these, like he, he was at um, HubSpot and he was at Lattice and he was a bunch of these kind of SaaS businesses. Yep. He's got equity in all of them. Can't realize a fucking penny. Yep. So equity is meaningless because nobody IPOs anymore. So on paper, he's like, I'm worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. Reality is I'm about to sell my house. So I think you and I both agree on this, but I'm, I'll give you the framework that has served me well for a long time. Um, so as, as someone who grew up at the racetrack, when I was in Brazil, I knew that I had to find something from my experience in emerging markets, which are when you have something that can go from I'm worth 100 to I'm worth 20 in a matter of weeks, which cannot happen in the United States, except for, you know, not even the crash in 87, which was a 20% fall. In in Brazil, you could lose 80% quickly. And I watched it with Telebras and things like that. And I traded in Mexico. Because the currency could go down, the stocks could go down, the bonds could go down, countries could get eliminated during the 90s quickly. And so to not be in that position to, to get hurt, I had to start looking for leading indicators. And I started reading up on Jeffrey Moore and the whole thing of how were the leading economic indicators created. 
Then most people don't know that he created ECRI, which I'm sure you used at some point in your days. And I love their work. And the reason I loved it is because they had a leading index. They had a long leading index. And that's the way I built my framework. The only thing I did differently is I realized the best data goes back to my growing up at the racetrack with my father in the fact that the dollars being bet by people in the market are absolutely the best indicator of everything. If I want to know where the economy is going, I want to know where copper is going. I want to know where job was, you know, where, where the S&P is going. I want to know where all these things are going. It helps me with the ism and everything like along those lines. So what I believe is that the market tells you a story if you just look at what's happened. Now, you mentioned one important thing and two, two important things for arguing for crypto so people hear it. The first one is there were 300 million users in 2021. And then during a horrible bear market, there were 420 million users at the end of a year where it's down 80%. Like if you just want to start there and be like, what other thing do you know that you get more users when it goes down every day? And everyone's telling you that this is the end of crypto, it's dead. And yet there's more users. Secondly, when you go through the numbers, I don't think people realize that of the 420 million, 270 million are in Asia. MSCI world, which is the dominant benchmark for the fiat system, is 70% the United States. The crypto world users, it's 16%, I think is the most recent number I saw, are US yeah. users. So now you're flipping the table in this new economy where I, I say this, the rise of many are benefiting the most. Now let's segue to your other point, which I think is important too. I knew that WeWork was an important story when it came out because that reminded me of Brazil. Goldman's doing the roadshow. I'm hearing numbers like WeWork's going to IPO at $100 billion. And then lo and behold, weeks later, it's a zero. Now there's a document or a TV series out with it. That happened before the pandemic. Now what we have is how many IPOs trade up a week after they come out? We're watching now the equity world and the VC world and all of this stuff go through and they can blame it on rates. They can blame it on whatever, but there's something changing that says there's a better way to monetize. There's a better way to come up with ideas. And there's a better way to raise your business. And I think it's what we talked about. No debt, use no people and find a different way to go through. And I think the crypto world offers a different solution. I think more people are going to take it. Hey everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So here's something interesting. I started digging into kind of Real Vision members, the demographics, stuff like that. And I had a hunch. So I went through and bought some research on the demographics of crypto. And I started going through brokerages, who's doing what in markets, everything else, to get an understanding of what the millennial cohort, which came, that actually got financialized in 2020. They weren't involved at all beforehand. 2020, they became financialized. So here's some interesting stuff. The traditional online brokerage firms, the, the traditional brokerage firms, which basically have gotten rich off the back of the baby boomers and their 401ks and their mutual funds and all of that stuff, their online brokerage apps 
between 2 million and 4 million monthly active users. It's pretty small because mm-hmm. most of the older people use their RAAs and they, you know, they've just got, they're just not as active in the same way. That's all dwarfed by Robinhood. <laughs> yes. Which is 22 million um, um, customers, of which 12 million are monthly active users. And they trade two things and two things only, technology and crypto. And on technology, because it's not racing enough for them, they're using options. And I'll, I'll come on to why, and this is, this is really interesting. But then I looked at Coinbase. It's 110 million accounts, of which currently, in the most subdued part of the crypto vol- volume cycle, there are about 9 million actives. I was at Coinbase, I think, in fact, I left your office and went to Coinbase, and I was chatting to them, and they're like, yeah, you know, if, if volumes just, just equalize back to normality, we're at 35 million active users, which dwarfs everything. Yeah. I went around the world and looked at all of the global brokerage accounts in all equities worldwide. It's about 500 million. There's 425 million active accounts in crypto. People haven't got their heads around the size of what is happening. You know, you see it. I remember on my Twitter users, yes, I've been involved in crypto for a long time, but as the world really got into crypto, that acceleration of Twitter followers that I had was the crypto size. It's five times larger than anything else. That's the TD Ameritrade 2 million versus 12 million, right? Six times larger. And people don't understand this. And this is this young cohort. And the reason being is that they've been left behind. They can't afford a house. They, they're very good. They put money in 401ks and it keeps driving those passive flows. But the rest of their money, they know they're never going to be what their parents are. So they've become speculators and rational, rational speculators because they're speculating the things that have the right tail. Yeah. And they will have a chance. So I'll, I'll give you, <clears throat> so my son, who's a senior in, in high school. So during COVID, he put $700 into uh, a Coinbase account. And by February of 2021, it was $80,000. Okay. <laughs> now I'm sure everyone knows what happened after it went back the seven hundred dollars. If now I think he told me it's twelve hundred dollars. So like that's a good rate of return over the last three years. During that time period, we had GameStop. Okay. Yep. We had the recognition that retail options in the market were exploding, and people were like, "Well, this is a bubble in stocks. This stuff will go down." And then it was like, "Well, this is COVID. People are sitting at home." Baseball in the U.S. shrinks. They do anything they can to make their game shorter. So they go through all of these changes. I start, my son's like, oh, I hate baseball. I need to have something that's a little more fast paced. To your point of, this is entertainment to them. And the thing is, they're going to make well, they money. They know how to play games to win. Exactly. And if they can play this game to win, and it's going to allow them to buy a house, they'll do it all day. He talked about this concept of pump and dump. He talked about how stocks were boring, exactly what you said. And the problem is with people like not believing this 
at the end of the day, you have to understand human beings will always have one thing. They're all, he was greedy. He didn't get out of his stuff at 80,000. And I was at 40,000. I'm like, dude, just take half of it out, please. And put it into Bitcoin. Like this is going to end badly. And he didn't do it. And then he started saying, I can't believe I'm now 18. I could have had a BMW right now. Instead, I don't have any money and I'm working at Dairy Queen. Like, I don't understand. And it literally is that story. And he wrote his uh, college uh, applications and the crypto story is part of it. What he learned from it, what he went through. And now he's starting to get interested again. And I asked him why. And he's like, eh, I'm hearing some things. Now he was hanging out on Reddit where he was getting all his information. So he was informed. He could talk more about the tokens that he was invested in from a position of what seemed to be like any analyst talking to me about a stock. So I think people don't realize that kids are better at gathering information, putting together a story. And I agree with you that this is going to lead to positive things for people this who is, get invested in the market. This is the power of the hive mind. Now, I'm a passionate believer in this, is that I think GameStop proved. Now, yes, it was a risk-taking cycle, blah, blah, blah. But the underlying analysis that drove that whole madness was correct. And... We see it time and time and again that the power of the hive mind, the more people get educated and understand this, the less they need the Wall Street analyst, the less they need yeah. the guy in the suit that they need to knock on the door and say, please, sir, can I have your advice? I'd love to pay you. They're not going to do that anymore. They don't trust them. They don't speak the same language. They're not interested. They'd rather they're smart enough. They will figure it out as a crowd. And I'm a passionate believer in that. And that's what crypto represents to me. It's like the very essence of that decentralization of, of finance, power, thinking, all of that stuff. Yeah. And so when we use, you, you and I know this, the power of the world community, like the word community, I don't think people have really thought about the concept of community that's really started to dominate things. And I'll even use Donald Trump as an example. He created a community that is rabid in love with him. Like it can't be broken. Taylor Swift has a rabid community that will go against you if you say anything bad about her. The Reddit world was attacking these hedge funds in, in this form, like this power of community, which again, you have to think about the fact that what percentage of people own the net worth in this country? It is a game. When you say the Gini coefficient is there, if you're in that crowd and you're fighting the many, it's really tough in this environment with communication and how quickly things spread. When you add a dollar amongst a billion people, it will move things very, very quickly. And the more users you have, and I don't, you know, maybe you have access to these numbers, but everyone talked about how crypto is owned by a few. And, and I agree with that, that the original people to benefit the most were hedge fund people and people that got in and they got in in size. And I've had this belief this year, watching a lot of these hedge funds that I know the people running them have a lot of money in the crypto world and their businesses have no liquidity right now. That crypto is being used because it's the most liquid security in the world. It trades 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if you need to get money to pay your people in a hedge fund that has a high watermark for the next seven years because your privates are not going to actually be coming out and being monetized, and you want to keep your business, you're using the liquid part. You and I know how this works. You have to go to the liquid part of your portfolio. And if you've got a bunch of illiquid things and you can't sell the liquid securities, you go into the things that you can raise capital for. And I think that's been one of the overhangs in the crypto market has been this. And that's why I think this breakout 
is kind of suggestive that number one, the ETF is coming and it's probably coming sooner than we all realize. It's a very, very big event because that'll just open it up to more. The retail that we're talking about using it is predominantly right now across Asia and other countries. It is not a U.S. thing. And I think you're going to, when you get an ETF, it's going to bring in a lot of wealth money that's going to be looking for something. And if they bought ARK, no offense again to Kathy Wood's product, but just it's an innovation thing that had a high multiples. Well, if crypto is working and outperforming that, then there's going to be someone that comes through at BlackRock or wherever that's able to convince people that just put three to 5%. And then every year when they realize what I've seen with the analysis that's been done by Morningstar, and if you haven't seen it, I mean, they put together a portfolio and said, if you just had three to 5% in Bitcoin over the last whatever, you've outperformed everything just by having that little amount. I think this is going to become a bigger portion of people's portfolios. And I think next year is absolutely a year where you're getting more people, more dollars coming in. And I think the chase starts. I think you bring the boomer and Gen X population in. Um, the millennials, I, I did a, a video several years ago, 2016, 17, called The Retirement Crisis that got watched like three and a half million times. And one of the key points I made for then was about this millennial population. I'm like, Bitcoin is your answer or crypto is your answer. It's the only thing that has an, a um, risk reward of this. That was back then and it's proven itself out. There is no other asset. So I have gone through this many, many times you and I are macro people, you know, I've got my Bloomberg screen next to me and I've got commodity prices, copper prices, dollar, you know, all the shit that I used to trade. I just do everything versus the chart of Bitcoin or ETH. Yeah. And everything is pointless. Yep. It's like a super massive black hole that eats everything. And the more people realize that, the faster the immigration rate comes, the faster the FDI comes, and it just keeps going. So here, here's the funny thing on this whole, like the importance of it possibly being an ETF and why it's so important to people. There's so much money now being managed in a model driven way, meaning you just you have a certain amount of bonds, certain amount of stocks and BlackRock's deciding or whomever's deciding. If there's an ETF, well, then doesn't it have to become part of people's portfolios? How many people in this country realize they own American? Like, if you ask them, do you own American Airlines? No, I don't own American Airlines. You sure? Because if you own the S and P 500, you do. Um, the weighting, whatever it becomes, even at half a percent, the dollars are enormous. If all of a sudden everyone goes, yeah, we're going to invest in it. And this was a thought, a conversation I'm sure you had with many pension funds, you know, in 21 when it was, or 20 into 21 when it was going higher, and then it became a, oh, I don't even want to talk about it. But most of the issue with it, they said, well, I'm going to look for private companies. And I just said, I, if you believe in crypto, you really just want Bitcoin, Ethereum, and or someone that manages the tokens. And my argument has always been, I want to, I want to have the benchmarks of the economy of crypto, not try to find the companies that are going to win, because I think they're all going to be localized. And so I just want that community to continue to grow assets and have the people continue, like my son, to put money into it. I don't want to be smarter than everyone and try to figure this out because I don't think these things are going to last as long. I think that pump and dump thing, hey, we're a token that's worth more. Axie Infinity goes up dramatically. Then it's not worth anything. I think there'll be a competitor for everything very quickly. So I think the ETF creation, which almost certainly will happen by the end of January from what I'm hearing, it's going to be a big moment for it. And I think now the sellers probably realize it who were sitting up there and they're like, well, I might as well sell on the news of the ETF. 
So maybe when the ETF gets announced, initially it falls down again, but I think this is going to be a trigger point for asset allocation models, including it in their models. And even if it's a small number, again, a small number on a trillion dollars managed to a model in a market size that's only a trillion dollars is a huge number. And that's what's considering happen. the number of holders. So the actual liquidity is minuscule in crypto, minuscule. I mean, I've, I've, I've built an asset management business, a fund upon business called Exponential Asset Management. We just allocate money to digital asset hedge funds. The traditional hedge fund world is $4 trillion. The crypto hedge fund industry, $6 billion. So there's no secondary market. So when you put in a bunch of FDI from TradFi land and put it into crypto land, it's just going to have a massively outsized impact. <laughs> you know what I love about our conversations and, and even what I'm doing with G3 on our podcast is you guys will say TradFi. I, I, I have a weird brain in the fact that all I think about is this massive bubble of 500 trillion of fiat assets which in my heart of heart, we're watching peak. And I believe they're peaking, like this is the peak. And so that if that's the peak, then the crypto world is going to grow. And every time I say that, people will go, well, you think this is going to go down, then we're going to have a recession. I go, well, there's two ways for it to go down. One is for there to be a reallocation into this other world where this is growing faster than that one. And that one's growing so minuscule overall that all the profits are being recycled in there. And that's what I think will happen. If we get 5% S&P returns over the next five years and bonds return five years, that money will recycle into this other world and that'll be the peak in it. You won't have the accumulation. But then when you go further, do you think real estate's going to grow if rates are up at 5%? No, I don't think real estate's going to grow. Is commercial real estate going to grow? No. That's a, when you add it up, it's real estate. Forget art and all that stuff because it's minuscule. You're talking about real estate globally. You're talking about stocks globally. and You're talking about bonds globally. That's the fiat world. The physical world is based on those. And I think it is the safest bet in the world that that dollar base has reached a peak because of the size of the debt and how much of the stock market and the assets are China, US, and Europe, and how people are looking for an alternative. And China, you know, not the entire country because a lot of them are poor, but when you add up everything, the Gini coefficient means there's very few winners, there's a lot of losers. So if you believe in the rise of communities, the rise of many, and that all of the educated kids that are coming out in Brazil and Africa and this, they're going to start their businesses in crypto, they're going to have Bitcoin because it's the currency of that environment. It's a global thing. It's just a no-brainer to me that this is going to have to go higher. I, I, I totally agree. There's another thing you talked about in crypto, which is... We have a very fast innovation cycle and things rise and fail and the ones that manage to rise will go down again and then they'll rise further um, and then the whole bunch just don't ever go there, right? And it's a very Darwinian quick cycle as, you, as your son says, pump and dump for some stuff, other stuff survives it. I want to go to a comment you made going back into the technology age that you don't think the Magnificent Seven or the large tech firms will capture because I think what you're saying is that AI allows the capital formation to be super fast and businesses to, to try to get escape velocity or fail very fast and it's, it's going to become more like crypto. So yes, of course, there'll be some new winners within that. The big technology companies will probably be okay, but actually this thing is going to look very different to what we understand. Talk, talk me through what you're thinking. 
Yeah, well, and you and I got into this, and I found this to be the most interesting part of of our podcast together. Um, so, AI lowers the barriers to entry, plain and simple. You want to you have an idea, you want to start it, you can create something very quickly. So it obviously competes with software companies. It competes with a lot of different things, and you've seen those companies go down. The argument I hear on the technology side is, oh, well, we've We've got all the invested dollars. We have all the power that's necessary to, to run these things. But the question is, how are you going to generate the revenues? At the end of the day, these stocks have gone up because they've generated a tremendous amount of revenues. Now, if you break down their revenue growth, which from 2010, just after the iPhone, until today, You've gone from about 100 billion in revenues to 1.7 trillion or 1.6 trillion, somewhere in there, of revenues. That's an enormous amount of growth. A lot of that growth occurred outside the US. Google has over 90% market share in Germany. I won't go through all of the numbers for all these things. If people don't realize that if you try, if you're a business like Microsoft, you go, we have AI and we're going to be putting AI in your. We're already watching what's happening with China and the US, which are battling over privacy issues and technology issues. Every country is going to be worried about artificial intelligence being inside their walls. They're going to want to have their own artificial intelligence. And if you look through the work from the EU, and even with the US and the EU working together on this, AI is going to be a disruptive force to anyone that is a global country that gets a lot of their revenues outside of the US. There's just no way around it. So if you lose that benefit, which is why at the end of the day, you've got total MSCI world market cap, US is 70% of MSCI world. <laughs> they, can't, they can't be the winners. It's not possible. And plus, you've been through this too many times. How many bites of the apple do you get? Do you really think when the iPhone was rejected by most people in 2010 because of the keyboard, most people didn't start buying the iPhone honestly until 2013, 2014. And that's when you started to see people really buy in. You watch the BlackBerry thing. Yes, they peaked, but no one wanted to make it. There were privacy issues, all of these different things. They found a way for people to do it. I just believe that what AI is going to do is disrupt all businesses with inside the fiat system because of the lower barriers to entry, which will allow them to compete with different parts. But if you're an employee at Google and you're young and you're smart and you come up with an idea looking at those walls, you're like, well, I can do that and I'll just go over here and do it. Generative AI allows you to do it without having all of the resources. Now they can't maybe create a Microsoft Copilot. They can't be embedded in every, you know, every office uh, system in, in, the, in the globe. I get that. Uh, and I do believe Microsoft has an edge just because of that. But I think thinking that these guys are going to be the winners of AI, I think it minimizes the fact that companies are going to start out of nowhere. And I'll just use Sultan as an example and know his business. He was able to start something which absolutely competes with Microsoft 100%. And I think we talked about the fact when you showed me what you were doing with your artificial intelligence, you also used a group like Sultan's group to help you with, hey, I want to have an LLM and a bot to make my user experience. You're not having to go through this whole thing with Microsoft. So I think the disruption is very obvious to me. Although one of the things that is going to be very difficult for investors to deal with is because it's there's so many people able to, to build a business around or on top of LLMs, 
and there's so much innovation because it's happening so fast by so many people that it's very hard to put plant a flag in where this is going as a business because you just literally don't know. You can't look at the playing field here. You can't ask people, hey, what do you see coming down the pike? Because it's, it's still being innovated away so fast that it's really difficult. Well, I, I say if you try to use the Web 2.0 playbook on the Web 3.0 world, and I'm including crypto and, as you know, AI together, and we didn't really get into this, but I don't think the Web 2.0 playbook works. I don't think you can find, and again, we'll use my son and this whole thing you said about how quick things move. Early stage, late stage, by definition, that's like a baseball game. It takes a long time. You go through this. That it, Things are going to happen much faster. And I don't think this generation that is maybe in their 20s at this point, that'll be the major drivers in these other countries, they're hungry to live. And I think that's the important message that I got from Axie Infinity. And if people, they should watch the documentary. The important thing is not what we look at. In fact, hey, Axie Infinity, I should invest in that token. No, really, the story was one about an economy being born. It was a digital economy that got, that created opportunity on a global playing field from the Philippines. Amazing. And the government had to deal with it because it became so big as the percentage of, of what had gone on. And I use that as an example of it wasn't investable, but for the people in the community, they were benefiting by making a heck of a lot more money than they could have made getting a job because they couldn't get jobs. So they were actually making more money in there. Second thing was educational-wise, the part I loved is when there were sponsors and they were creating these teams and they were like, okay, we'll pay for you to go through it. And we get a percentage of this. Like it was an economy that people have to watch to really understand the power of kind of this community-based environment, which is not about a person getting super wealthy. It's about a distribution of everyone having a chance to make more money doing something they enjoy, as opposed to going into a job where they work 50 hours a week and they kill themselves and they go through it. So and when people ask me about what the hell we're going to do about income in a world of AI, I'm like, it's digital societies. It's working together as a community in like-minded projects, whatever it is. And, you know, if you can't see what is going on, you're blind. If you can't see what's happening in crypto, if you can't see what happened in Axie Infinity, which is not just crypto, if you can't see what's happening in Minecraft, if you can't see what's happening in GameStop, these are people working together en masse in digital societies that are globalized. Nobody cares where you live, who you are, what you look like. They don't even care what your name is. You're just part of this big game. And the game can be money. The game could be something else. And this kind of rise of digital nation states, well, digital nation states are ones with currencies, and we're seeing that, Ethereum, Bitcoin, others. Axie Infinity was a digital nation state. Ended up being a failed state, as did GME, yep. GameStop. But these are the incremental things that get built on top of each other before something really big breaks out here, something really big. Yeah, and these things, like I said about the way I learned about how to kind of look at assets to judge, these are real things that are happening. And so I, I look to collect a lot of dots and then see if what I think is happening is happening. Um, we didn't get into the authenticity part, but I think AI directly has an impact on the need for the blockchain as a parallel thing. I mean, if you have 
the inability of, and you, you've talked about this in a very, very clear manner, which I'm sure you've done, and I want you to have to go through it again, but I think the election in particular and just what's going on in the U.S. next year serves as another point for how authenticity is really critical. When we have a Middle East conflict going on and photos are coming out in Twitter and people don't know what's real, what's not real, because it can be generated by AI, there's really no more news. And so your point about you know, blue check marks don't mean anything. That does that's not really authentic, you know, anything authenticated that eventually the blockchain will be used for often authenticity for sure. And so if those, if you believe that we're going to need more authenticity, then that by definition means you're going to need more blockchain approaches, which by definition correlates into crypto again being another place that you grow. And it also allows you to have a passport to different digital societies because you've got your online identity. It's like it gets rid of the idea of passport, which is your single nation state. You'll have a passport that gives you rights into the other nation states that you have. Yeah, sure, you might need another token to allow you access, but people don't see this, but this is a whole world growing up in a whole different way where national borders are just about resources yeah. and resource, uh, resource allocation, physical resource allocation, and everything else happens digitally. So here's the funny thing, Raul, and I think for, for everyone who's listening who's either not completely bought into crypto or even a skeptic, the, the, I started my journey towards really trying to figure out how this would fit in my knowledge of, of macro. Like, where does this fit? And I had spent, like I said, the prior kind of seven years before 2020 when I really got interested in it as an asset because I started seeing a change and I saw the money printing that just said, oh my God, we're exploding money. This has to be a big thing. I wanted to see how it fit. And I went to learn a lot. And then in 2022, I guess, no, 2021 is when I started really getting on Real Vision a lot when you were offering the free thing. And I was watching all the interviews and I hate listening to people who talk about crypto in this religious zealot way and it didn't interest me and I would get off of all of them. I was trying to fit it in the context of a world that still works where it's not the, these guys lose dramatically, we win dramatically, which is what I was hearing a lot. I also didn't believe that the greed coming out was gonna work out that way. So I thought from an LA Wave perspective, we were near a bubble phase where everyone who had already made money and was highly educated in the crypto world had to go through a shakeout and the Axie Infinity story was the one I migrated to. I really thought it was a powerful story. And then I started figuring out, well, this fits in the world in how overvalued fiat systems are. And the Gini coefficient has to come down. And the only way for it to come down is for the 8 billion people that have not participated in the fiat system to have something that goes up in value where they're gradually gaining some power. And so it made sense to me from a macro perspective. And I enjoyed listening to you. Marco Papich wrote a great paper who I know you've had on on the metaverse and the end of, of countries. And I thought it was brilliant. And I really do think people should read that, but he's a macro person too. So I wanted to find, as you say, TradFi people who could speak about the economy, the Fed, where this all fits, but also could talk about the crypto world. And the part that I think I migrated to when I started to piss people off was to say to you know pension funds, okay, I don't think VC is coming back. If crypto is what I think it is, this concept of early stage, late stage, it's not gonna happen. There's gonna be, for every billion dollar company, there's gonna be a thousand, hundred, you know, $10 million companies. Or if it, like, there's gonna be too many because they're all gonna be local. They never go public. 
And the people that benefit are the idea creators, but then the community who made the idea go up. And that's why Taylor Swift is kind of running this mini crypto community world. And if people spent time on and actually understood what she did with like her songs to disintermediate that, it really is a lot of blockchain crypto thinking. And I don't know if it's intentional by her or not, but that's like a microcosm of what I see. Well, she knows she's an economy. That's I think that's the point. Yeah. She knows. I mean, she literally drove US GDP. Yeah. And she never goes against her 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 group. She spends time with them. She knows how to make sure they feel like they're welcome in terms of what they do. Now, the woman's made a lot of money and she sold a lot of tickets to things, but everyone who's gone to them that paid the money and went through it. I asked my daughter when I was writing a paper on Taylor Swift to compare her to the crypto world, what, what Taylor Swift meant to her. And a 21-year-old girl wrote me this incredible thing about how her life changed because it was like she was writing things that she felt and it was all community-based. So I'm a big believer that instead of crypto being a web 2.0, let's find the winners thing. It's about the community and that doesn't make it the same playbook and that may make it harder. Bitcoin is the easiest way to, for people to participate because I think it goes up. It just doesn't have a story that people can migrate to because there's no story for Bitcoin. <laughs> no. So what, you know, really what it is, is the entire market cap of the space goes up, you know, and that's, that was one of the reasons I started the asset management firm is like, I'm going to leave it to a bunch of hedge funds to figure out what those tokens are, because that's hard. You know, it's, you've got to do a lot of picking, a lot of trading, a lot of figuring it out. But overall, the market cap, my view, I think it's the same as your view, is that we go from $1 trillion, which is ludicrously undervalued, and it will be priced like an overall asset class, like equities, you know, global equities, $200 trillion, or global bonds, $200 trillion, you know, that kind of thing. So that's yeah. a 200-fold increase in market cap that's going to happen over the next decade or so. Yeah. And if you believe in the power of community, and I said to you, um, so what is the currency or like in this economy that Taylor Swift has created, if you read about the merch that she sells and the way she's kind of created this, that there's certain items that she only has a few of, and those get sold on the open economy. And then they've got bracelets that they're all exchanging. It is, and it's experiential, like the, the fans will be outside. It's a really powerful thing. And if you don't believe that there's a, a, a something going on there that's transformative, that's happening, I think people are missing it because this is far bigger than people realize from what's happening to the way people think about an economy, how they think about experiences, as you said, how they think about what's, what, what's of value to them. Uh, it's just all changed and it fits in with NFTs in the same way. And that's the way I think about it. It's, yeah, it's all the same. We're going through a transformation of society, whether people like it or not. And my view on this is you might as well invest in it as opposed to fear it. Because when you invest in it, it kind of clears your head a bit and you fear it less and you focus on it more. And you can reject some parts of it, but what you'll be is more open-minded. Because it's not going away. You can call the GameStop people as stupid as you want. You can call the people in the Philippines who started Axie Infinity dumb. But it's not going away. Because this is the new digital society. And this is the way people can make a living in the future. Or more importantly, as you said, sometimes you need to make capital gains. Because income's not enough. 
Yeah. Yeah. And if you're really worried about it this year, if you were to put, you know, 95% of your money in a money market fund and you put 5% of your money in Bitcoin, well, you're up close to 10%. That's better than the S&P. It's better in bonds. And guess what? Worst case scenario, you lose 5% if Bitcoin goes to zero. So everyone, sh- or not, you, you don't lose anything because you're getting your, your 5%. But if people finance it that way and they really think about it, you're getting paid now to invest, to take the risk in Bitcoin. You don't have to invest in the S&P and you don't have to invest in bonds. And people are greedy and they're driven by profit motive. And however many people say in the media world with rates at five and a half percent, you know, nobody's going to buy any other assets because you can just sit there. I'm like, well, the moment you point out that Bitcoin's up 110%, you feel like a moron for getting five and a half percent. And that's and as you said, you can structure it that you can actually take very little risk and get huge returns. And that's the penny that comes with the uh that's I think the penny that comes with the ETF and the recovery out of, let's call it the soft patch, the moment that that happens, then the spigots reopen. Yeah. Because to open up, I mean, it's kind of shocking that there's 400, honestly, 400 million plus accounts out of 8 billion people on the planet, 7.5 billion, when you have to open up a wallet and you have to go through the process, which... How many people in the U.S. above the age of 50 are going to go do that? But if there's an ETF, I mean, again, now all of a sudden you can go invest in it through Black, you know, a BlackRock ETF. Oh, it changes everything. That's right, because now you don't have to open a new account. It's as exactly. simple as that. It's like paying. I need to open a Coinbase account, KYC. It's just, it's painful. Here, you can just go, press my button. I'll buy some of that instead of buying whatever it was I was buying before, QQQs. You know, I'll just... I'll buy some Bitcoin instead. Yeah, and I think it's helped that in the press, everyone knows that it hasn't been an ETF. When it becomes an ETF, it's like going through FDA drug approval. I mean, it's like, okay, it's safe now. Now the government has okayed it so I can invest in it. I just think we haven't seen anything like this before. Um, That's why it's such a big event, and I think it matters a lot more than what people realize. Just because we haven't, if you believe in a new economy and a new situation, this is the overlap between them. The future is not enough because pe- most people can't invest in futures. So to actually straddle the TradFi and the crypto economy and actually create a bridge of investors for where most people have their money, it, you need this. And I think once they add it into the models for you know what your portfolio model allocation should be, which is going to happen from all the banks because they can't not be involved in them if it's the only asset going up. And that's the thing that I think is going to happen is that that asset, and this gets back at the beginning, if you believe in no business cycles, if you believe that rates are going to stay around 5%, IG yields are now at 635. The earnings yield on the S&P is around five and a quarter percent. So you've got IG yields above S&P, which is going to act as a really big it's going to act as a governor on the market going up that much because we haven't been in this situation since 2002 where you were at least 100 basis points higher than the earnings yield. So IG bonds are comparable. You're not going to have as many buybacks going forward because rates are up at higher levels, so they can't be using the buybacks issuing debt to go through it. I just think the equity market is going to have a really hard time getting any kind of fast start without a recession happening to where we go through the same 
story we've gone through. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think we're going to have a recession too. And also, when I did the work on the debasement and just divided all assets by the Fed balance sheet, make it simple. Yep. The S&P had gone nowhere since 2008. Real estate had gone nowhere since 2008. Gold had gone nowhere since 2008. Nothing had gone anywhere. They all looked like the European stock market. I'm like, that's interesting. There was only two assets that went up, technology stocks and crypto. That is it. There is no other generator of wealth. Everything else is standing still against the debasement. If you look at those charts when you get a chance on your Bloomberg, just do the uh, just do the S and P blah, blah 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 divided by the Fed balance sheet. It, it was shocking to me. That's what that's what I found the exponential age thesis from was by doing that and going just sitting back thinking, shit, this is telling me something much bigger than I quite understand, and I went down that rabbit hole. Yeah, and it, it's interesting too. Which your death of fiat is there, but it's being hidden by the denominator. That's my point. And if you, so again, if you go back now and you say, okay, well, if we don't have a recession, how is the balance sheet ever going to expand again? If the balance sheet doesn't expand again, then do we think we're going to get stocks and everything to outperform it? No. So it gets back to the point that the fiat system then on that metric fits well, in the same thing. In a way, it's the same thing, right? Yeah. If you don't increase the balance sheet, they go nowhere. If you increase the balance sheet, uh, in balance sheet adjusted terms, they've gone nowhere. So nobody's getting wealthier. There's only two things that trend. And they're the two things that we both came to the conclusion from. Exactly. Um, so there we go. Jordy, it's listen. It's going to be the same thing too. So. Yeah. Amazing conversation as ever. I didn't think it was going to be this much about crypto. We didn't even get to biotech and other stuff. We'll get into all of that another time because we could just talk for hours and hours and hours. In fact, we have. So we can. That was a fabulous conversation. I loved it and I hope people found it very useful. Thanks a lot for having me on, Roll. I've, uh, I've enjoyed doing this now for the third time between the two of us. Uh, let's, let's keep doing it, especially as, uh, as crypto continues to go. And yeah, the biotech side is going to be the next thing that I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I don't know enough about it. So I'm going to expect you to teach me or find somebody to bring on to Real Vision that we can talk to. We'll do. We'll do. Because it's just, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to get up another learning curve. Yeah. But we have to. <laughs> We'll do it. We'll do it. I'll find someone because it's it's actually kind of hard, uh, and I don't want to I don't want to go down down any rabbit holes. But I'll I'll spend some time on it because G three and I have talked about the same thing for the podcast. We're actually going to do another one on Ozempic because we did one and it was the most listened to podcast. So the reason you should be spending time on it is because it's 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 some but it's in everyone's head because they've seen it on the news. But now because of what's happened to Staples companies, what's happening with the dialysis companies over the last three, what's happened with biotech, small biotech companies, the fact that Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk are using the Web 2.0 playbook and they're buying up all other weight loss drug companies, just like the mega caps did. This is a much bigger story because of the debt we have, the healthcare expenditures, and we did one on that side. I'm gonna get you back. We're gonna talk about the whole health thing because it's something I'm really interested in. You know, I'm yeah. looking at the book lifespan behind you. We got lots to talk and guts. I've read that as well. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I've read zero to one. I've read I think Darwin's a good one. Yes. I spent a lot of time on it. <laughs> good. All right, my friend. Great to see you. Thank you. You too, Roll. Thanks, man. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. 
take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds.